regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hello everyone, uh, welcome to a new episode of Datacast and today I have the pleasure to speak with Dr. Jason Corso. Dr. Corso is a professor of electrical engineering and computer science at the University of Michigan and also he's the co-founder and CEO of Voxel51, an AI software company creating development tools for improving the performance of computer vision and machine learning system. As a veteran in the field of computer vision, he has dedicated over 20 years to academic research and has authored nearly 150 academic papers and hundreds of thousands of lives of open source code on video understanding, robotics, and data science. He received his PhD and MSc degrees from John Hopkins University and his bachelor degree from Loyola University in Maryland, or in computer science. So yeah, uh, Dr. Corso, welcome to the show. Thanks, James. It's a pleasure to be here. By way of introduction, you studied computer science at Loyola College in Baltimore for your undergrad back in the late 90s. Uh, so would you mind going over your experience in a small liberal arts environment uh, alongside some of your early exposure to academic research in uh, image registration? Indeed, it is quite different to study computer science in a liberal arts environment than in a larger university or a technical school where you can primarily focus on technical courses. I mean, as an undergrad, I was taking courses on you know, the sonnets of John Donne, uh, and then I would leave that course and go straight to operating systems and, you know, be responsible for thinking critically about both liberal arts topics as well as computer science topics. For someone with, like me who has broad interests, I found it quite rewarding to do that because it let me really focus on or, or deepen my understanding about analytical problem solving, analytical reasoning, both uh, on like widely different topics and I think that was great. Uh, and I guess another aspect that you get in a, in a smaller school is that I had very close relationships with nearly all of my professors in college. You know, the, the Linux lab was right across the hall from the faculty offices. And I spent maybe half of my time in my third and fourth years there. It was just really quite a great environment. Uh, so I enjoyed that. That relationship allowed me to get into research pretty early, which may be a surprise when you think about a liberal arts college. So in my second summer, they have this program at Loyola called a Hobart Science Research Fellowship. And so I had always been a visual person, very interested in programming since I was a kid. And I had built a relationship with the computer graphics professor, Roger Eastman there. And so we together jointly scoped out a project on image registration. And that really was my first introduction to computer vision, to image registration, to kind of mathematical modeling for computer vision. And I still remember the first paper I read. And in fact, I met the author of that paper a few years ago at a conference. And it was quite uh, reassuring uh, or, or quite exciting. Thanks a lot for sharing your undergrad experience and how you like, combine a lot of different interests going through this field. In the next five years, you went to John Hopkins to get your MSc and PhD both in computer science. 
Under the guidance of Dr. Gregory Hager, you completed your PhD on techniques for vision-based human-computer interaction, which proposed the visual interaction cues paradigm. So first of all, how was your overall experience in graduate school? And, and secondly, can you share the motivation in fighting up your PhD dissertation? Certainly. So graduate school was a new, very new experience for me. In some sense, you might consider me like an accidental academic. Uh, when I went to college, I didn't really know much about graduate school or, or what research type of life was, would be. Uh, and I really only applied to Hopkins because I wanted to stay in Baltimore at the time. I was lucky because it was, it was an exceptionally rich environment for someone like me. I, I mean, I was alongside students who came from all international locations, other domestic students. I felt like I was the worst prepared only because I wasn't thinking about graduate school beforehand. So I actually spent a good amount of the first year doing math problems in the library alone, which was, a, I'm all the better for it now, I guess you could say. But I, I, you know, I really enjoyed the Hopkins graduate experience. And in some sense, like the Loyola undergrad experience, you know, it's a, it was a pretty small department when I was there, maybe on the order of 20 faculty. I mean, my lab had five or six PhD students in it. And so it, it was a really individualized experience that I enjoyed quite amazingly. In terms of my overall dissertation, you know, I actually began as a computer graphics student with a different professor at Hopkins before I shifted over to Greg Hager's lab. I guess the, I shifted from graphics to vision primarily, because, I mean, both are visual fields, right? So I mentioned, I, I just enjoyed uh, the visual, visual domain, visual aesthetics. And I shifted because I was interested in the applied mathematics underneath computer vision a little bit more than computer graphics. Uh, in the sense that uh, when I was doing research or doing work in computer vision, I was going to be able to quantify the performance to really understand and analyze it from a systems point of view. Uh, and I guess you, one might say that the dissertation topic was really a culmination of my broad, like all of these broad interests, right? So it's creating, the real underlying thesis was to create a shared perceptual space between the computer vision system and the human user in such a way that uh, we could enrich the environment with things like augmented reality or with things like multi-touch gestures before there were iPads or multi-touch gestures or anything like that. So, you know, one of the, the physical test bed that we built was called the 4D touchpad, uh, which essentially laid a, an LCD panel down flat on the tabletop and had two cameras looking at it and observing what the human was doing while interacting with the environment. On, rendered on the LCD display. It really was an, a precursor to multi-touch interaction, all with computer vision ideas. Uh, and it was a, a fun way to uh, combine graphics and user interaction and computer vision together for a thesis project. Awesome, thanks a lot for sharing that. And since then, do you still follow sort of SCI and do you see any particular trends or progress in, in that and anything that you're excited about at this point? You know, it's a good question that we might digress on for a long time. Uh, so I, I've learned over the years as an academic, you really need to focus on an area, uh, at least pre-tenure. I, I mean, I've had tenure for a while now, but uh, sometimes old habits die hard. But it's difficult to maintain a professional relationship with many different areas because mm -hmm. you have to read a lot of papers and write a lot. To, you know, it's a time-consuming endeavor. But I am, frankly, rather personally invested and interested in uh, modern HCI, you know, modern, regular, even just from a software interaction, right? So you can think of physical interaction with devices, but also with a software layer. I mean, how should I be managing my calendar is a question I ask myself all the time. And, you know, using various tools like my iPhone or my cell phone or my calendar on the web browser, like, you know, long story short, 
yes, I'm interested in it. Uh, and, and I've kind of adapted my professional direction in, in that way, but I've certainly not had enough time to spend on it as I can. The way I've adapted my current work on it is some of my PhD students and I have recently been publishing papers to the tune of, if you have a human available at inference time for a computer vision problem, what questions can you ask that human to help the computer vision system perform better? You know, things like pose estimation from one snapshot of a vehicle is a very difficult problem from a computer vision standpoint because the ambiguity in orientation of the vehicle, just, just visual challenges. But if there's a human who could answer a question like, what's the front of the vehicle or the back of the vehicle very quickly, then you can envision a much more rich system. So that's been a pretty hot topic in my lab for the last couple of years. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And we're probably going to touch on that later on in the interview. Before that, so after finishing your PhD at John Hopkins, you spent two years as a postdoc fellow at the David Kevin School of Medicine at UCLA. And then during your time there, a very interesting project we were involved with is to develop automatic segmentation and recognition techniques for brain tumors to improve the accuracy of diagnosis and treatment. So could you mind sharing a little bit about, I guess, the background of the brain tumor problem and the details of the methods developed here? Uh, certainly, yes. So I was um, lucky to, to land this postdoc. It was a joint effort between the medical school and the uh, statistics department. Uh, and so I worked pretty closely with Professor Alan Yule, who is an expert in statistical physics for Markov random fields, conditional random fields, and broadly image segmentation, which were the mathematical modeling language of the time. So this was roughly 2005, 2006. Yeah, so this was a, my introduction to segmentation. So that's the computer vision problem we really looked at. And so brain tumors, right? So, and I'm not a neuroscientist, but this was certainly a good introduction to neuroscience. And can we have an impact on human life by doing computer vision research? So we studied a type of brain tumor called glioblastoma multiforme, which is one of the most invasive brain tumors. And generally, I think once diagnosed with a GBM for short, a glioblastoma multiforme, generally the patient has less than five years to, to live. Interestingly, one of the biggest indicators of that longevity up to those five years or even, even longer is the amount of like how fast or how rapidly the tumor is growing. So this tumor is so invasive that it grows so fast that it kills itself. In the visual signal, you have this really enhancing part of the tumor, which is the live active tumor, uh, which shows up very brightly on the MRI images. And then inside of that, you have some vasculature, some blood vessels, and also necrosis or dead tissue. And then around that on the outside, in a different sequence from the MRI scan, you have what's called edema, which is a fancy word for swelling of the brain. It's kind of like high water content in the brain. From a scientific point of view, our problem was, can you measure the size of the active tumor and the amount of the edema from one scan onto the next scan? And if we can measure that, can we use that as a prognosticator for prognostic measure for how rapidly the tumor is growing uh, and then for the patient's longevity? For this problem, we, were, we actually developed a set of methods called segmentation by weighted aggregation. So this was a graph-based representation over the MRI image. So imagine the whole big image, right? So it's like a, I don't know, 256 by 256 by 32 slices was a typical MRI we were working with of the whole brain. So very macro level, not, not this cellular level. So every voxel in that grid has a, is a node in the graph. And you know, if you look at the neighbors, you walk along the paths of that graph, you can start to compare how similar they are or how different they are. 
uh, we had two advances in this methodology. One advance was that we, rather than looking only at one scale, which might be too finely resolved in order to get a broader understanding, we built a multi-resolution graph over that data. And uh, I guess the novelty there was in some sense, this was 3D data, which is kind of um, sort of big data, at the, especially at the time. Mm -hmm. So the code that we had to write was pretty involved. And also for every node at any higher resolution part of the graph, it kind of induced a kernel, a weighting function over the raw pixels themselves. And so you could really see what support each node in the graph had over the original pixels. The other contribution was this notion of a Bayesian affinity. So when you look at two nodes in the graph, mm -hmm. how do you compare their similarity or their difference? That's roughly affinity. Bayesian affinity was, okay, imagine that node A is a tumor pixel and node B is a normal brain pixel. If you make that assumption, can you learn a special, a dedicated distance function or similarity function over, the, over that assumption? And imagine the other case where they're two normal brain pixels. So it lets you kind of make uh, presumptions over the pixel values and then average out those presumptions to, to lead to an overall better, better distance function. Yeah, that, that was the contribution, I guess. And the other bit of it was that this was really the beginning of when I began to open source my code as a researcher. And so that, that library is available. It's still used. In fact, sometimes people ask me about segmentation problems and I wrote it in Java. So it's, I can still launch it on my you know, contemporary laptop and run a segmentation method on images or video or medical images as well. So I think open source was a big deal for me back then and has continued to the day. Thanks a lot for sharing some of the details in this work. And uh, it seems like that sort of stopped your research direction on like problems of segmentation and, and recognition, especially from a Bayesian perspective. Yeah, exactly. From 2007 to 2014, you were a professor in the computer science and engineering department at SUNY Buffalo. During your time there, you taught like several semesters of two graduate level courses on Bayesian vision and introduction to pattern recognition. What are some of the essential concepts and methods that you cover in these courses? Uh, interesting, yeah. So th these courses are the primary courses that I would have my graduate students take in my research groups. They were really designed to prepare someone for research in what you might call high-level computer vision, right? So the ability to uh, take a, a visual sample or a set of visual samples and pull out information from those visual samples that would be understandable by humans or by other intelligent agents. So in the Intro to Pattern Recognition course, I mean, this was really a core machine learning course. Like, what can you do from a computational perspective and then backed by some mathematics? So whereas a standard intro to ML course might be more heavy on the mathematics, my course was a good balance between the computational efforts needed for machine learning and also the mathematics that backed up those methods. So we would, for example, go through the history of discriminant functions from when they were developed in the 1950s all the way up through how they led to SVMs. And so we'd implement, you know, the batch methods and individual perceptron methods, finally through, through SVMs, and then relate those to even neural nets at the time as, as well. Do it both in terms of mathematical development as well as uh, computational interest in how you implement them. On the converse, the second of the two courses would be the Bayesian vision course. This really was uh, given a intro to pattern recognition course as well as maybe an intro computer vision course. Uh, if you want to pull information out of images that is understandable by humans, what models and methods could you study or should you study? So Bayesian vision really took a look at like Markov random fields, conditional random fields, really generative function, generative models, 
Um, this was a pretty mathematical course. If you think of an image as a graph, like I was saying from the brain tumor work, uh, what are the right ways of structuring the graph, the neighborhood functions? It goes over the, the Hammersley-Clifford uh, relationship between the graphical structure and the provability of the distribution underneath that or that, that operates on that graphical structure. And I mean, it was a fantastic course to teach because, you know, it was very usually a pretty small course, like 15 or 20 students. It was a whiteboard course as well. So it's sort of a laborious course, right? So I go into the lecture, I start talking and writing for 60 minutes drawing up these graphs and deriving the potential functions on the graphs and so on. But then for the second half of the semester, it was a very project-oriented course. So mm -hmm. we'd read papers and every two students would come together and develop a Bayesian method for computer vision. That's really interesting. I guess like it's a sort of content being covered, you know, back in those years, like early 2010s, it's definitely more historical and more primitive compared to like the type of materials being covered these days. Well, it depends on what the word primitive means. So if primitive means fewer variables and less data, then certainly. But on the other hand, they are also more sophisticated in the sense that uh, we could ask better questions about them and understand what those types of models uh, were doing in a way that we still cannot for contemporary methods uh, when you have so many layers and so many variables and it's really hard to query what's, what's going on in that black box. Yes, their performance was less and more primitive, but they were also hindered by less data at the time, but uh, certainly more understandable from a mathematical perspective. Uh, so I think it's a good, good complementarity between contemporary methods and those types of statistics-based methods, yeah. Okay, let's discuss a couple of the significant research projects that you were involved with at SUNY Buffalo. On the topic of metric learning, you propose an approach to data analysis and modeling for computer vision called active clustering. Whereas traditional methods in machine learning typically requires input from the users before perform computation and they have no subsequent interaction, uh, this method active clustering six dynamic input from the user during processing. So can you share some of the relevant details of this clustering approach? Certainly. So indeed, traditional or classical machine learning is what we call supervised machine learning, where it's almost like you have a two phases. In the first phase, you're getting labels from the humans or from the oracles, if they're humans or not. Then you save those labels. And then in the second phase, you use those labels along with the raw data to train a model. I've been frustrated with that modality or that approach for more than a decade now since we began thinking about this problem. Because, I mean, if you think about it, it's kind of limiting. Like, what, what if my problem adapts over time? Or uh, in production, I don't know what questions I really need to ask for or what labels I really need to seek. We've been looking at the active approach to that, which is instead of just two separate phases, you iterate across those phases, right? So you get some data, then you, and you label it, and then you train a model. Okay, you get some more data, you label it, you train a model, and like it's a nice cyclical process, which is much closer to practice, especially as I've learned now that I have a company and so on, that generally you're going to need to iterate through this. And the faster you can iterate through that process of getting data, rapidly experimenting with that data, the better. So there, there was an existing method called active learning or area of methods where you basically ask the question, okay, I, I have some data and I have a model on that data. What next data should I get basically? Or what new labels should I ask for from the human? And for classification problems where you, can, you have a posterior distribution or a conditional distribution where you can say, you know, measure the entropy on that or the uncertainty over how your classifier is performing on certain labels or certain samples, that leads to a natural way of asking the next question. So out of the 100 samples I have, this one is the most confusing 
Okay, so ask the human for an updated label on that one. Active clustering changes that, that picture a little bit by saying instead of getting a label like dog or cat or Volvo or Toyota, instead you're just gonna ask for grouping constraints. Like should these two samples be grouped together or should they be farther away? And if you can think about it, right? So if I, that type of question is much more difficult than the classification or active learning type question because the space of possible questions you need to explore is quadratic, right? I have to look at not just samples one through A or one through N, I have to look at samples one through N cross samples one through N. So it's a much bigger search space. Uh, so we developed a few algorithms that efficiently explore that search space in an effort to make that efficient. Uh, in fact, I'm still, I remain interested. We just had a journal article on active clustering just maybe two or three years ago. So I remain interested in that space. And I think it's really uh, helping to pave the way for a new way of looking at active or learning with less labels, things like that. Yeah, thanks a lot for sharing your detail. And uh, yeah, definitely active learning has been making a lot of rows recently. And so it's good to hear some of your thoughts regarding that learning paradigm. You also spend decent amount of time doing research on image understanding. Generalized image understanding is a project that examines a unified methodology that integrates low, mid, and high-level elements for visual inference. Uh, would you mind explaining sort of the overarching goal that you want to achieve with this methodology? Certainly. So, so indeed, the term generalized image understanding was, was a term I created when I was writing my uh, NSF career proposal. And I guess today, what we would call that is image captioning. So this was early work, I think I, uh, this was from 2007, where, you know, just culminating, if you recall back from the discussion we had on the brain tumor work, like, can we understand information from visual data in a way that humans can use it to make decisions or understand it and so on. So, you know, following on that direction, I began to get very interested in the relationship between the visual data and the humans, like human language, human semantics, and so on, as well as uh, what constraints are we talking about? Like, so is this, is this an MRI image or is this a robotic system operating on a tabletop or is this a natural language article with some image caption? So what are the operating conditions? And so my goal in this project, which really has, I mean, I've been thinking about this for a long time now. I, I now call the relationship between those three things like perception and semantics and, and physical constraints. I call that the cognitive system entanglement. So like the fact that you know, when you want to do a vision understanding problem like image classification, you're making tacit assumptions about the semantics or the language and the operating environment. Like if you download all your images from Flickr, well, you just assume that basically they're cell phone images and people are holding them above their heads and they're generally going to center the object, for example. And in my research for the last 10 or 15 years really has been motivated by the fact that I don't want to make tacit assumptions about those three pillars of the entanglement. I really need to explicitly understand that. So the actual methodology proposed in this generalized image uh, proposal was about the relationship between things you can extract at a low level of the image, how those might relate to the physical environment or to con semantic constraints. Then at the mid-level, like there's a graphical structure over those images. And I think now we might call that a scene graph representation in modern words. And then all the way to high level constraints that are really driven from the top by language or by human semantics and physical constraints. For example, you know, if I understand that I'm looking at a vehicle driving on a planar surface, I can use my physical reasoning, either learned or implemented naturally in the system, to constrain the plausible movement uh, or directions of motion of that, of that thing. And so that was the idea there. And the ultimate goal from that was to generate language 
mm -hmm. outputs from the system. And I think we had a follow-on project that we called iStare, Spatiotemporal Activity Reasoning Engine, which really mapped those same ideas into video. So the, the generalized image understanding was for static images, and then how can we take those same types of representations and map them into the temporal domain with, with video? And this was really the beginning of my interest in the video signals over images, uh, just because of the rich temporal structure that, that you get from video. Yeah, so let's talk about that project as the in more detail, right? So my understanding is like you already mentioned, this, this project tried to represent, learn, recognize reasons over activities in videos. Can you unpack that, that statement and like what sort of the challenges of working with video model compared to working with like static images? Yeah. Certainly. So, so video, is, um, video is hard, right? So, so an image is like a 2D grid of pixels. I can have a lot of them. They're generally easy to work with computationally and easy to understand. But if you lift the dimension to space-time, you have a rich structure that evolves, right? As, I'm, as someone gestures or as someone walks through a scene, the way their, their motion impacts the spatiotemporal signal is, is very, it's almost, it's beautiful, right? The, the way it evolves. If you, if you think about the video as a volume in 3D in space-time, and so in, in this particular project, we were trying to uh, build a system that could understand human action and how that human action related to certain objects in the scene. So is the human walking? Are they picking up a barrel or are they, are they carrying a bag? And we built models that were graph-based models over the 3D visual domain that, not sorry, 3D might be confusing, over the 3D space-time domain so that we could understand the flow of information over time. Now, if you think about modern contemporary deep learning in comparison to older like MRF or graph-based models that we we're using back then, you can almost see a limitation of modern methods, right? Like they require so much data and in order to understand temporal evolution over time, they, there's so many variables over typical models in, in deep networks that it's really difficult to build models that do have an understanding over long temporal flows of information. Whereas if you can extrapolate a hierarchy from a graph-based representation, uh, it's natural to relate something, you know, 200 frames from now to, to the current time. And so that's the type of questions that we were asking. Uh, the ultimate deliverable from that project, actually we had two things. So this was a DARPA funded project. And so one of the things that we delivered to DARPA was what we called voice, uh, video on an index card engine. So you can kind of take, take a whole video and translate it to just a few text snippets that would be renderable on a small three by five index card. Mm -hmm. And then we also stood up a website called videototext.net where users could upload their videos and we would send them off to a compute cluster and they would translate those videos into descriptive human language that would describe the content of those videos. Awesome, thanks a lot for uh, dissecting that project and you know, some of the specific problems working with, with video data. So continuing to talk about like your, your research on, on video, right? Action bank is a high level representation of activities in video, which comprise of many individual action detectors sampled broadly in semantic space as well as viewpoint space. So yeah, would you mind, you know, discussing some of the shortcomings of historical approach to activity recognition in videos and how did this project or this method action bank address them? Uh, certainly, so action bank was written right at the cusp of deep learning methods like when they were becoming popular in images and not in videos. So it's kind of interesting that if you're asking me to contextualize Action Bank historically, so let's see. So prior to Action Bank, 
you have a, a set of methods that attack this, what we commonly call the activity recognition problem. So what is that problem? Really, it says given a video that has a fixed number of frames, say T frames, usually few frames, maybe 200 or 150 or some data sets it was 30, classify that whole video into one of K different activity classes that are predefined. So it's a closed world activity recognition or closed world supervised classification problem. Uh, it's really video classification, not activity recognition, but nevertheless, we called it activity recognition as a field. This was, this was named prior to my, my studying it. And so there were two types of methods beforehand, or maybe three types of methods. One was based on hidden Markov models, where you would think of like every frame going through that video as a sequence of inputs, on, you know, visual, visible inputs to this hidden Markov model. And then underlying that was is like a hidden or latent state that the human's doing in the video. Uh, and that's what the hidden part of the HMM is. You want to understand that model. So HMMs have been around for a while. Uh, we use them in my PhD dissertation that we talked about earlier on gesture recognition. And um, the challenge is that when you have widely varying data, there's not enough, let's just say, capacity, model capacity in an HMM to map what's viewed to the, over, to the underlying latent state. It's, it's just not a rich enough model modeling domain. So th those methods died early 2000s, I guess. Maybe not died, but became less well-studied, I guess, less, less interesting to the contemporary people at the time. And they were replaced by methods that are called bags of feature methods. So basically, you know, from a computational standpoint, it's very attractive, right? You have a whole video. Instead of trying to recognize the whole video, just kind of play dumb in some sense and say, what are the interesting points from that video? And then map them into some rich descriptor that, you know, there are many different types of descriptors that, are, that were out there, like histogram of oriented gradients, motion boundary histograms, and so on. And then basically for a query video, try to find, well, first extract its feature points, and then match those to your bags of feature points and see which ones match the most, kind of like majority voting. And that one, th those methods were state-of-the-art up until uh, deep learning and in some sense action bank. You know, and they were, they're rich. Uh, you could sort of hand define all these features, build a rich description over the, over the video. And uh, they just didn't scale that well to many different action classes because you needed, you know, it's kind of like a cursive dimensionality problem where you just needed many more interest points and, and more capable descriptors and they just weren't there. So Action Bank was kind of like a bridge between those ideas and between deep learning ideas. So the mm -hmm. basic representation in Action Bank of course, we did not predict the future at the time, but we just kind of got lucky that, that we proposed this, this method. But the basic idea was, uh, instead of looking for interesting feature points, can you create an, like an action space? So we manually selected exemplar actions, video snippets from our training data. And uh, those became, essentially became the basis vectors of an action space in which we would embed a novel video and then use off-the-shelf classifiers like SVM or logistical regression or whatever at the time to, to compute what action it was. And so it overcame the need to find feature points and to track motion over time. It was really a early more like convolution-based data-driven approach. And why is it convolutional? Well, it's convolutional because we took these exemplar images that we, that we selected from the data set and then we embedded them into a, a motion space the paper was called Action Spotting, 
by a couple of researchers at, I believe, York University in Canada. It was maybe like a 2009 CVPR paper. And we used that underlying convolution-based representation with these manually selected kernels to create that action space. Okay, now map that to before mapping that. So, and at the time, I think our paper was the first, this was a CVPR 12 paper, the first paper that really operated on a large data set like UCF 50, right? So 50 classes, prior to that, we were in the space of like eight or 10 classes, much, much fewer videos. Actually, and just a side note, kudos to SUNY Buffalo because they had a massive compute cluster uh, on campus and they basically let all of us use it for free. I, I don't know how it was funded because uh, we, didn't, we didn't pay for the cycles on it. But we were, we basically, we destroyed that cluster. Like we used, we used more cycles on the cluster in 2011, 2012 for this paper than the, you know, at atmosphere researchers were doing or physical modeling people or physics people were doing. It's a kind of like a precursor to today where you think about, oh, we need so much computational power to do research. You know, I think that like that was really awesome at the time and, and they had a great maintenance staff to help with that. Uh, but if you think about modern methods like convolution-based methods or deep learning methods, you know, so they are layering layers of 3D convolutions for some type of action recognition methods. Uh, and the difference really is that they uh, are doing it right on the raw pixels instead of this action spotting type motion representation. And they learn the values of the kernels, right? right. So this was, that's why I think of it like a bridge, right? So it really was a convolution method. In fact, in the paper, we actually do layer two different layers of the convolutions in our early action paper, action bank paper as well. So it's kind of like an early two-layer deep network, if you will. But I, I like the flow of history there because it really does show the evolution of, of these methods. Yeah. This work is being presented in CVPR 2012. I'm just curious, like, what is the general reception from the computer vision research community to this work? Yeah. Well, it's my, most second, it's my second most highly cited paper, so I think it, it was pretty well received. But I think it was also, now I look back on it, uh, I think I, it was also kind of like a, a laughing matter. As soon as deep learning came to the table, you know, the, the question was, why would you manually select the kernels if you could learn them? And that's kind of obvious now, but in some sense, and I guess for that reason, like Action Bank was fairly easy to beat at the time, right? So, you know, we, we may have had the first results on UCF 50 and HMDB 51, but I think like our HMDB 51 score was like 27% accuracy or something like that, which is abysmal to today's standards. But at the same time, if you think about it, you know, there's a lot of research right now in explainability for AI and deep learning because these models are so massive and so opaque, you can't really understand what's happening. Whereas Action Bank, like there's a set of results in the paper, you could say, well, this video is a kicking video because it looks like 50% like this soccer exemplar and 50% like this kickboxing exemplar, right? So you can actually map what the answer was right down to the semantically meaningful features. And although that representation has fallen off of popularity right now, I think there's still some merit to that type of representation. Thanks for sharing that. Continuing to the topic of the recession video, LibSVX is a library of SuperVoxel and video segmentation methods coupled with a principal evaluation benchmark based on quantitative 3D criteria for good SuperVoxels. Can you explain the notion of SuperVoxels, their role in video understanding research, and uh, the different algorithms implemented in this library? So LibSVX actually came out, actually both ActionBank and LibSVX came out of the iStare project, actually. So this was a pretty impactful set of funding that we had. So what is a voxel? The way we were using it. So a voxel is a pixel in space-time. So a volume element of the space-time video. And if you think about, like, why was I thinking about video as a volume? Like most of the time in, in computer vision, we think of video as a sequence of frames, 
like tracking research for many years, motion segmentation. It's just always a sequence of frames. So this action bank work that we did really let, pushed us to think about video as a volume. We began to look at how image segmentation methods mapped over to video segmentations in this notion of video as a volume, as a space-time volume. And so I think it was summer 2011, we had sort of like a, a summer of code where I hired a bunch of students and each of them was assigned one algorithm and it was an image algorithm, image segmentation algorithm. And their goal was to convert that to video segmentation for what we call super voxels. So whereas a voxel is a pixel in a space-time video volume, a super voxel is a collection of those voxels together that have some notion of uh, meaningfulness in a, in a semantic sense, or even maybe not even semantic, but even like a, just a signal sense. Like there's some homogeneity over the grouping of those voxels. And so, right, right, because, I mean, a video pixel or a voxel, like, the sampling resolution is a function of the camera. I mean, how, what, what was the pixel lattice? Like, it's really not meaningful from a processing or computational standpoint. And in images, there had been introduced this notion of a super pixel. So we mapped that notion over to the video volume and, and implemented this library. Uh, and so I think in the library, there, were, there are quite a few methods. So methods that are based on global Fourier decompositions over the video volume. There's a graph-based segmentation methods, I think two of them. And then, and some of the methods were hierarchical and some of the methods were not hierarchical. So back all the way dating back to my brain tumor segmentation work at uh, UCLA, uh, we actually used that code, re-implemented it uh, for video and had segmentation by weighted aggregation in that library as well. We uh, secured a large, by today's standards, not large, but by then 2012 era, fairly large video set to do this benchmarking against, uh, and then also made some contributions over how do you evaluate video segmentation? Because it's not, it's not a, you know, any edge detection-like problem or segmentation-like problem has many possible solutions for one input. We put a good amount of effort into thinking about how to do that evaluation. Finally, one comment about both Action Bank and LibSVX, because they both came out in the same year. They were both at CVPR 2012. This really was the beginning of a phase shift in my approach to research in the sense that all research that comes out of my lab now, I require that the students also release their code. Mm -hmm. uh, and this was eight years ago. And so nowadays we hear a lot about re reproducibility and yada, yada, yada. You know, I think, I thought, and I think that that is so important for research to just to be able to, to trust a paper you read and to know what you have there. And it's actually so much so that in fact, if you download the PDF of Action Bank from my website, you'll see that there's a note on the top of it uh, where we almost had to withdraw the paper after it was accepted because we couldn't, we, when we were preparing the code for public posting, uh, we actually could not reproduce the numbers we had in the paper. And so we, we spent a lot, quite a few sleepless nights after the camera ready deadline. Thankfully, they let us, they gave us a, an exception and we resubmitted the final version with numbers that we could reproduce that were obviously commensurate with those that were in the original paper, but they were slightly different, some, some up, some down. Uh, again, reproducibility, super important. You know, releasing code is one thing, but being able to reproduce all of the results in a paper with a click of a button is the goal that I set for all of my students and all the papers that we produce. Thanks a lot for putting that emphasis and discussing you know, that approach to research that you propose. Just taking a break from discussing some of this research topic and circling back to your career. Since 2014, you been a professor of electrical engineering and computer science at the University of Michigan. 
There, you are affiliated to Michigan Robotics and the uh, Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. So can you give an overview of AI research activities at University of Michigan? I mean, the AI is a big area at the University of Michigan, and I almost can't do it justice. There's so much emphasis in, in AI, both AI and robotics. In fact, uh, what really drew me to Michigan was the budding Robotics Institute, uh, which has a great, you know, great leadership, great set of people really in touch with not only you know, theoretical robotic research or writing papers about robots, but actually building robots that function and operate in, in the environment. And really, it, it resonated with me because, if you recall, this notion of the cognitive system entanglement I talked about a little bit earlier. You know, so I was very much attracted to, to those efforts. But on the AI side, more broadly, I mean, there's research going on in reasoning, strong research in NLP, in the relationship between AI and human-computer interaction. It really is a top-notch uh, research lab for artificial intelligence. And then at Michigan, you have taught a couple semesters of two uh, graduate-level courses on foundation of computer vision and then also uh, advanced topic in, uh, in computer vision. What are some of the type of problems and projects that uh, students learn from these courses? Uh, sure. So they are like the, in some sense, the evolution of the Bayesian vision course that I taught earlier. I don't teach the machine learning course at Michigan. There are plenty of other excellent faculty to teach that one. But my Foundations of Computer Vision course is really like an introductory graduate course to computer vision. And it really builds on my, you know, I, I started this course roughly 15 years after my first research project at Loyola doing image registration with images. When you think about computer vision, it's a very integrated or very broad domain of research, right? You have to think about applied math. You have to think about physics. You have to think about coding. You have to think about physical things. So it's, it's, it's really, really complicated. Oftentimes that leads to hard to understand courses for computer vision because they're just topical. Okay, here's optical flow. Okay, here's image segmentation. Oh, here's this, right? And, and it's hard to map those topics into research or into applicability. So what I do in Foundations of Computer Vision is try to organize the information and integrate it or assimilate it into a more digestible approach. And I'm actually working on a book on this approach as well. Given my company, I, I have put it on the shelf for a little bit, but there's, it's in the works. So the course is structured as follows. So there's kind of two halves of the course. In the first half, uh, we talk about how to represent visual data. So the first of that is, well, images are functions. So if you have an image as a function, what can you do with an image as a function? Okay, we talk about things like classical derivations of convolution and Harris corner operators, like really from first principles. And understand th these are the limitations and the capabilities of images as functions and when you would use it in practice. Okay, the second of three representational topics are images as points. Okay, if not functions, well then an image is, is a set of coefficients that live in a large vector space. Okay, now that images live in vector spaces, what can we do with them? Well, it's amazing. We can learn bases over those images. We can transform them. We can operate on them. Very different than images as functions. But it doesn't support certain properties or certain needs like segmentation or understanding how different pixels relate to one another, right? So the third of the three representational approaches is images as graphs. That's where you start to think of, okay, if I have to understand the spatial arrangement of the data in the image or the video or whatever visual data you're working with, then you have to think about it as graphs. And then in the second half of the course, uh, we start to uh, look at end-to-end -end case studies. Like in my view, computer vision is not much more than a set of different optimization problems. And so you have problems that reduce one type of image to another type of image. You have problems that extract from one image 
uh, another representation and you have problems that match across different images uh, or those representations. So in the world of optimization, we kind of give examples of different visual computer vision problems and then uh, implement those and, and study them through this world. I really enjoy teaching it. I'm actually, I'm teaching it right now as well, actually. And uh, I think it's, it's a fresh perspective on computer vision and the way to think about problems in computer vision from a first principles or, you know, foundational standpoint. Yeah. So, so that's, that's that one course on the advanced topics in computer vision. It's more of a classical what's hot right now. Like we, you know, we, we read papers, we then discuss those papers, try to pick apart the details, implement them. Uh, it's really like a project, you know, second or third year graduate course where we study what, whatever is exciting right now. Thanks for sharing those details. You know, some majority of recent research has focused on video captioning and, and video description. Would you mind like quickly going over, you know, this research problem and ideas that you pursue? So video captioning is the modern incarnation of the problem that we talked about from 2007 I gave where you have an image or a video, in this case a video, and you want to extract natural language from that video, not in terms of what audio was said or what text is in the scene, but in terms of what is a description of the content of that video. And you know, I've been int interested in this problem for over a decade now, and I, I had a great student, Louis Joe, who was also interested in it over the last few years. And so we've been looking at aspects of video captioning that tie, uh, the, tie the video content not just in a high level, you know, data driven, like, you know, in, in these days with, with deep networks, you can really just, here's an architecture, here's a lot of data. Let me just throw the data at the architecture and see what happens. Unfortunately, that's a common way of writing papers these days. I don't like that. So what we do, what, what we've been doing is things like grounded video captioning, right? So in the video content, okay, what are the objects and the actions that are happening that are interesting? And then how can those lead to a good description or caption over that video? But we don't do it like we did 10, 15 years ago where we actually try to find the objects and then, you know, and then map those to some ontology and write text templated sentences. No, we, we use modern methods that are data driven as well, but are explainable in the sense that they can say, well, we say this word here, we say horse here because of this soft kernel over the video or over the image. And that's the way we've been looking at video captioning these days. Thanks a lot for, you know, kind of letting your crowd work on that one. So last year you worked on a very exciting software called BubbleNet, which choose the best video frame for a human to annotate. In addition to helping train algorithms for spotting doctor's clips, it could uh, improve computer vision in many imaging areas such as, you know, uh, autonomous vehicles, surveillance, and home robotics. Can you, you know, unpack the, these algorithms, the design of the software and potential industry application of BubbleNets? Certainly. So BubbleNets may be, despite my interest in video captioning, BubbleNets, my most fun paper from the last few years that has come out of my group. Uh, so this was done with Brent Griffin, who's a research scientist in my group. And, you know, Brent was looking at how can I drive robot manipulation of complicated objects by segmentation mm -hmm. uh, from a video feed. So that was the driving problem here. It's not an easy problem. If, if you've ever looked at, you know, go to YouTube and look for video examples of robot manipulation, whether or not you do it from first principles or do it with machine learning or do it some other way, it's a, it's a hard problem. So as a proxy to that motivation, 
we looked at the video object segmentation literature that was in, conceived, I think initially there was a paper by Kristen Graman at UT Austin called uh, Key Segments, I think was the first video object segmentation paper. And in that, in that problem space, the idea is basically for this video, can you segment the dominant moving object in the video? Or more recently, given a human segmentation of an object in the first frame, can you push that or you know, propagate that segmentation throughout the whole video? And uh, I think it's a great problem. In fact, I had a paper also in the 2012 era called Video Label Propagation, where the idea was given the first frame of a semantic segmentation of a whole video, a very dense semantic segmentation, can you propagate that segmentation through the whole video? The paper never got too popular because it was, it was only in a workshop because uh, it got rejected from every conference because of the simple observation that we made, uh, which was that if we don't do anything and we just copy the semantic segmentation from the first frame, we did be better than any method we could do at the time. Uh, maybe now with, with more complicated videos or deep learning methods, we, we could do better. But anyway, so BubbleNets takes that problem of video object segmentation where you're given, the human can give you one frame of segmentation and you want to propagate that one object through the video and makes the observation that the first frame is not always good in practice, you know, in problems like surveillance or you know, medical care, like a surgery in, in a surgery environment or robotics applications, you may need some other frame. And, you know, in the context of how humans are available at inference time, we were thinking, okay, what if we asked the human for a segmentation at a different frame? You know, could that lead to a better, better overall segmentation throughout the whole video? So BubbleNets is an idea that's, that asks that question and, and answers it. So basically it says, if we can uh, sort the frames using a bubble sorting algorithm, that's where the name BubbleNet comes from, mm -hmm. uh, by comparing the goodness of each frame for whether or not we ask it, independent of what object we know the human's going to label. This was, that's the interesting thing, right? You don't know what, what object the human's going to label. So take a video, uh, 100 frames, for example, and it can have, it can be a complex video of a marketplace or whatever, can the algorithm nevertheless rank what frame would be best for a human to label any object in? We show something like a five or 6% improvement in overall performance in the video object segmentation, if you can do that against methods that only look at the first frame, or in fact, methods that only look at the first frame or a random frame or the last frame or the middle frame as well. So th there's a lot learned there in that BubbleNets paper. I guess like, what, what are some of the potential industry application of BubbleNets? You know, can you provide some examples of that? One thing that's really big in industry right now is the ability of building data sets. And like semantic segmentation is a problem in like autonomous driving or robotics or in healthcare, like surgery video analysis is one thing I'm involved in. So one could use BubbleNets as a way of reducing the amount of effort needed for human annotation, right? Like instead of just having them label the first frame and, and worrying about the rest of the segmentation, you can choose for them a best frame and trust your semi-supervised annotation uh, much better. So if I was starting a new company on annotation, I would do this type of method. I, I'm not doing that, but that's what I would do. So uh, that's one, one good example of that. Broadly within the space of like, if a human is available at inference time or you know at, at operation time, what could the human do for you? Uh, and so I think that's a good example of that. And be sure to include the link to the video that showcases how the algorithms works, which is really informative. Taking a break from talking about your academic involvement, in late of 2016, you founded Voxel 51 with Brian Moore, who is a PhD student at Michigan. Can you share anecdotes of uh, you know, the company's inception? 
Uh, sure, I'd be happy to talk about how Voxel 51 was conceived and what we do. It's an interesting story. So Brian Moore was a PhD student when I started at Michigan in 2014. Mm -hmm. uh, he was not my student. He was a student of a friend of mine, a colleague of mine, Raj Nadakuduti. But Brian took my computer vision course, actually, the first course I taught at Michigan. And you know, he was the type of student who was always attentive, always answering questions, always asking questions. I really felt challenged by Brian, and we kind of built a relationship or a friendship after that. And in fact, actually, Brent Griffin, who wrote Bubble Nuts with me, was also in that class. So the two of them I've continued to work with since that course. So, you know, we were talking, and over the years, I've been thinking about how to make an impact with my work for, you know, since the beginning, right? Since the brain tumor work in some sense, or even before that. And I was getting a little bit exhausted by writing papers. You know, I'm an academic. The economy of an academia is writing papers. I was getting a little worried that I would spend the next 15, 20 years just writing papers, right? Like, you know, what impact would they have? Uh, and so I love research. I love problem solving. I could probably be just as interested in database research or economics research as computer vision research. I just really love problems. So there was a lot of tension there for me. Uh, and so ultimately I decided to, or we decided to, to found Oxl 51, but my motivation there was, okay, can we take some of this research and bring it out into the world as the product so that we could more closely garner impact over what we do and, and how we can touch society in some way. That's really the background of like why it exists. And we, you know, initially we founded it as a uh, LLC in Michigan funded by a grant from NIST. It was great to start a company with dilution-free money. Uh, you know, we spent a year and a half building an infrastructure the output of that whole grant program was an open source library called ETA, github.com slash voxel51 slash ETA. Uh, and that's an, it stands for Extensible Toolkit for Analytics. And it's primarily, it's really a, a general purpose computer vision library that is more for how you can sort of build systems that require computer vision capabilities than something like OpenCV, which is like a nuts and bolts library. So they're very complementary in that sense. Ultimately, a couple of years later, we decided to go the VC route. We took some investment from a VC firm. You know, we began building out a go-to-market for a computer vision product. And ultimately, where we landed is with a new tool that we just launched. It took a while to get where we are. Uh, but we just launched this new tool called 51, which is really our flagship, right? So it's an open source tool. And what's the background for 51? So I guess what did we learn over the years while we we're trying to figure out what type of product to build and what, what to do as a company and, and so on. So what we learned is that two really key points. One is that doing research in computer vision for recognition and you know, deep learning based ideas these days, there's even segmentation or whatever. Generally in research, you assume that you're given a data set and you go somewhere to some data set index, you download the data set, and your paper is all about what you do to that data set, like, or on that data set. Like you have a model and you beat the other papers that also worked with that data set. No one really gets much credit for the data set. Maybe Jadang and Feifei got credit for ImageNet. Kudos to them, amazing. You know, but there are hundreds of data sets every year. And many of them, that a lot of people put tons of hard work into, right? And so that's a problem because in practice, you don't have the data set to start with. So you really need to figure out how to build the data set. So it's a shame I couldn't tell you about a new course I was offering, like data set construction 101, because that is the real problem in industry, 
you know, generally choose any model architecture off the shelf. It's going to work good enough or well enough. What you need is the data for your problem. And unfortunately, that's not taught. So that was one huge observation that we made. And actually, if you look out there at the tools, there are not that many tools out there that are data set analysis tools. There are tools for like CVAT for annotation. Wonderful. I love CVAT. Great tool. There are many companies out there for uh, annotation as a service, annotation APIs, annotation on-prem, like tons of annotation companies. And then other side of the spectrum, like on the model side, there are many companies out there for experiment tracking or tools for experiment tracking, uh, like Neptune, Comet, many others. And one open source one as well, MLflow, which is, which is fantastic. But if you get to the part about visualization and analyzing your data, there's TensorBoard. Okay, it's a good tool, but it's not really about analyzing your data. It's about analyzing how your models, your experimentations has, has been going. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a tool by Facebook called Wisdom, which to be honest, I've never launched, but I think it's about analyzing your models uh, and trying to understand what, what properties your models have. But there are really very few tools about the part that's the most important thing, which is data sets, how you do data set analysis. Mm -hmm. uh, and the second key thing that, that we realized, I guess, or learned about is that most of the, like data scientists love to love to work on their own turf data scientists ml engineers computer vision engineers there's really no single word for it but like we are cowboys we, we are a field of cowboys and cowgirls like we love to control our environment i want to know where my data is i want to know what code's going into it i want to know everything about it so you know whereas many of many companies over the last five years have been launching about like end-to-end -end platforms for AI and platforms for this or platforms for that, I think they're all going to die and they're going to deconstruct into tools. And so we decided to basically build a tool that would handle the data set uh, problem. And so our tool 51 is an open source tool that really enables you to like very quickly ask questions about your data, things that would take any competent engineer like a day or two to implement with Python, custom Python code, you can do in a few lines of code in 51. And just from a real geeky standpoint, the coolest part of the tool, right? So if you go to GitHub, download the tool, github.com slash voxel51 slash 51, spell that as letters. It has a tight bridge between Python and the GUI, right? So usually when, when a vision person is working with their data or whatever, like, you know, they're in some Python shell or some Jupyter notebook or whatever, something like that. Right, so they're writing code to that's loading in their data and working with it, training a model, whatever. Uh, and then when they have to visualize the data, they have to leave that Python environment, go to the shell, and launch some visualizer from you know, you know, I, I use image magic tools still, I'm old, I, I like display and animate great tools, XV, and so on. And it just there's no connection there, right? So, what 51 does is build a tight bridge between the Python environment and the GUI. So you, in, in the code, you actually type things like 51.launch app. And then when you're in the app, if you wanna do a filtering that's more sophisticated, uh, like say you have a data set, you wanna understand and rank. First, you want only images that have people in them, and you want to rank it by the number of people in them. That's a hard query to visualize if all your images are on disk. But with 51, you can write that in a line of code, it launches in the app immediately. And then if you change your query with, with a GUI slider or something like that, that query is available directly in the Python shell as well. So it's really cool from a, just a geek out standpoint as well. Thanks a lot for really digging to some of the weeds of the company. And 
lessons on the importance of data analysis tooling in the market, and then uh, really have a user-centric mindset and enable you know the data scientists, and machine engineers to control and, and configure their own platform. And I definitely agree with you on the fact that you know there's across the ML pipelines, you know, there are a lot of tools on data management at scale, and you know the, the modeling step and even deployment step, but or computer vision data, and then it's, it's definitely. There's a lack of tooling, like you mentioned, that enable users to filter and, and search, know exactly whether or not they're going to fit their own problem. And then you mentioned the point about, you know, 51 as seamlessly integrate both the command line interface and the GUI, right? I assume the company is, is mostly consists of computer vision engineers, you know, machine learning engineers. What, what are some of the tips or tricks during the development of that tool to enable like a nice user interface? Do you talk with designers or do you incorporate any other external open source design software, stuff like that? Excellent question. So first of all, it's important to understand the composition of the team. So working on 51, so there's uh, me, Brian. Uh, so Brian's kind of like the lead engineer at, at Voxel. I play the role of devil's advocate a lot. So I question a lot of things and like, you know, we try to set up as much design principles so that when you have to make a decision, you can look at the wall and well, now the figurative wall, cause we don't sit in an office together, but you can look at the wall and like, okay, I should keep it simple. I'm going to keep it simple, that, that kind of thing, right? So what do we want to get out of the system? Uh, and then we had one computer vision or machine learning engineer, and let's say two production general software engineers, you could say. So that had some experience with front-end development. Uh, so it wasn't a big team, actually, that built this up. And actually, we had another person uh, who was with us for a while, maybe another, a second uh, computer vision or machine learning engineer as well. So maybe four full-time engineers and Brian were really doing the work there. I did contribute some of the code, but it was more on what we call the brain of 51, which is uh, more of the machine learning algorithms that you can use on top of just the visualization component to build some insights into your data. So how do we design well? We fail fast and we make a lot of mistakes. So we use an agile style approach to design. So, you know, we basically set goals or features that we want or functionality that we want. And then we give nearly full freedom to the developer to do that development. And so the precursor to 51 was an earlier tool that we had built called Scoop. And we learned early on in Scoop, actually, that uh, engineers are not good designers. So you should not try to design the system yourself. Uh, And so we have built relationships with very excellent, highly skilled designers that are not full-time employees with us, but that we have a contractual relationship with. And it is amazing how someone who's not mentally burdened by how to implement something, what type of thoughts they come up with in the overall workflow of the UX and the UI. We definitely, I highly recommend assigning roles to people uh, with clear goals and some of those roles to be UX and design with professional designers. And another quick question regarding, you know, because 51 is an open source library. What are some of the lessons you learn about community engagement for an open source project? Yeah, it's a good question. So there really are two aspects. And one is, I think specifically in AI and ML, open source is basically a requirement, uh, or at least open core, like for any, anything uh, these days, like just in order to build the trustworthy, to be trustworthy or to build the credibility of the tool in the community you know, we want to look at the code. In fact, I'm working on a blog post about why I think AI and ML should always be open source. So how do we iterate and build a community? And and we are pretty young still, actually. So 
Uh, the first thing we did when, when we started building, really focusing on 51, which was around last March, or actually this March, so March 2020, February 2020, we iterated many times with already friendly people that we've worked with in the past. We never did it fully mock, but we hacked up a very simple interface first with some functionality. We sent it to a dozen people. We waited for them to use it for a few weeks. We had a half hour call with each of them, got some data back. We iterated that again another time. And so we were already sort of building a community by listening to people who are not us first. And then by the time we launched the open source tool, which was in mid-August of this year, just a month ago now, we already had a few dozen people who had played with the code, touched the tool, understood what the potential value is and so on. That was a big deal for us because we could sort of hit the ground running. Uh, only a month later, we already have maybe like 80 GitHub stars, uh, more than 150 people in our Slack community. You know, we, we set some goals there, which was basically don't be bashful, be willing to ask people for help. Like I have a lot of friends in, in the space. So, you know, I ask people, can you try the tool? Let me know what you think. That was a big deal. Like you have, you have to be able to do that or willing to do that. Uh, but also when people request help to answer them quickly, uh, if you don't answer them quickly, then you lose their attention. And so those are two big things we've learned over the years, especially recently. Yeah. I see. Yeah. So do things don't scale and really focus on, on custom support. Yeah. Recently, Voxel released the physical distancing index, which tracks the impact of coronavirus global pandemic on social behavior. What are some of the different components that went into the uh, development of this tool? The physical distancing index or the PDI uh, really was a way to bring our team together during the pandemic. I guess that was at least half of our motivation. The other half was just trying to see, we kind of asked ourselves, what could we do to help our community or help society during this crazy, crazy, crazy time. It's completely, you know, it's not a business that we built or a product that we're building for anything like that. So just for the listeners, just to understand. So basically what it does is look at a camera feed and detect and track any mobility related activity in that camera feed over time. I think one frame every 12 minutes or something like that. I could, I could be wrong about that. I forget the exact, the exact amount. Uh, and then it plots that on a graph that you can interact with. Uh, and then it also lets you plot uh, the case rate for that camera, the, the, for the city around that camera, and other news articles and so on. Again, we built it as a way, we put it on the website, really as a way to help understand, like, you know, every, we started working together in an office, you know, last year. Now we had to be working at home, working separately. So we were already personally feeling, is everyone else feeling the same impact to mobility and interaction? So... Uh, so that really is what the tool does. I mean, from a technical standpoint, it's not that sophisticated. So, you know, the tool uses efficient debt from Google as an open source model because we didn't want to, you know, we, we didn't have the resources to get data to train up and so on. Uh, and then it just does some pretty classical statistics ideas and for windowing so that it can, you know, use like a kernel density estimator to smooth out the detection signal so that it looks, it's like a daily average in some sense that it becomes uh, sort of interactable. Uh, and from a like uh, front end or you know software standpoint, you know we wrote some different code to access different types of camera streams and camera feeds. In fact, I wrote one that gets camera gets gets data from YouTube. That was my contribution to the project. Mm -hmm. And then we tried out a new front end library whose name I'm forgetting. Gatsby, written with Gatsby. One of the engineers on the team wanted to try Gatsby, so he tried Gatsby for it. Awesome, yeah. And be sure to include the link to the PDI page. People can inquire more. Starting of 2021, you will become the new director of 
the Stephen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Can you share the details about this uh, exciting new chapter of your career? I can, and it hasn't begun yet, but it will begin soon. So it's it's really a if you think about the journey uh, that I've been engaged on for the last fifteen years or so, right? So not understanding what graduate school is. Oh wait, I can actually like solve new problems and do things that people don't know how to do yet, and make a contribution to society, uh, to a postdoc for brain tumor research, and then many years in trying to you know. Looking at different aspects of computer vision problems, and then uh, you know I think I, you know writing a, a lot of papers, maybe more than 120 or so papers, and then realizing maybe papers are not the end all and be all to to life, and so then starting a company. Can the company be the right way to make an impact? You know I've learned a lot over the years, and you know while both research and the company are wildly rewarding. And, and Voxel 51 will continue on. It's, a, it's a, in a healthy place right now, great tool. I'm super excited to be involved in it as well. But this AI Institute is kind of like the next chapter, right? So I've focused mostly on computer vision so far in my career because you have to focus in some, in some sense. But I've been you know, thinking or looking, thinking increasingly about broader AI issues. And I, I guess like I'm motivated to have a voice in AI limitations, in data ethics for AI, in responsible research. Like I've mentioned for the last 10 years or more, all of my papers are required before we submit them to be able to have reproducible elements to them. If we don't do that, we don't submit the paper. And I think that's just, that's like a responsibility of a researcher. So uh, with this new institute at, at Stevens, maybe I shouldn't say new institute. So it was founded maybe a year and a half ago and got off the ground by another professor at Stevens. But my joining the, the effort will have a great impact on the direction of the Institute and the place it has in broader AI. And so my, my vision is really to build an Institute that supports social AI. So, you know, like um, both from a research, te very technical underpinnings, of course, but also from socially relevant problems, right? So, and I think there's kind of like a, you know, there's like a quadrant to, to you know, two axis system, right? So like very technical or more general knowledge oriented and one axis and, you know, and sort of like research problem or application on another axis, right? Like you can think about different areas in that space and, you know, we will cover all aspects of the space, but, you know, there, there's a, tr a true power that AI has to empower the everyday human, the everyday person, to uh, live a better life, to make better impact, to make better decisions. And at the Stevens Institute, you know, we will be uh, leading the charge in that type of social AI, you know, explainability, understanding why certain models work, and then building mobile apps for free download for everyday humans to leverage that work. So for me, it's really exciting because I can really see how everything I've learned for the last 20 years and all the great collaborations I've had and, and good connections I've built will really set a exceptional foundation for building the Stevens AI Institute into something that, that everyone may look back to and say, well, this was a really important player in the development of modern AI. Thanks a lot for clarifying on those motivation and you know, culture journey tied together. In some of the remaining questions, I want to take a look at some of the, I guess, bigger picture career advice that you have for the listeners. So uh, thinking about your experience in academia and industry, what do you see to be the differences and similarities between being a professor and being a founder? Yeah, that's a big question. The differences and similarities between being a professor and a founder. Uh, and it's important to point that founder is not just general industry, right? So 
I think that's an important distinction to make. I've never worked post-schooling in a company like Google or Facebook or whatever, where many of my wonderful colleagues do work. So I think there's one word that can integrate being a founder and being a professor. And I think that is the word create. So I think that when you're a professor, a young professor, I mean, I mean, you know, I had no experience whatsoever in teaching when I started as a professor. I remember sitting at my desk and like being really scared in the, within the first few weeks of the term, like what on earth have I gotten myself into? And then, you know, if you recall a little bit ago, we talked about the course foundations of computer vision, right? So like, it took a decade or more, but I've created this approach to computer vision or teaching computer vision that I think is important or, or relevant. And you know, you, you create research output, you create a culture in your lab, right? You create uh, students and you mentor them. And I think there's just a lot of creation in being a professor. And, uh, and being a founder is not unlike that, right? Like you're creating a company, you have an idea, but you have to put pour everything into that idea. You create the culture, you hire the people, you bring them on. You have to understand what we need to do in terms of decision-making, what we should not do. Maybe the second word is a notion of listening or empathy, right? Mm -hmm. Like as a teacher, as a scholar, as a professor, as a mentor, I have to listen to my students, to my lab members, to what's happening in the problem space in order to guide my, my research. As a founder, we need to listen to the potential customers or listen to our employees, uh, right? Listen to and ingest what is being said so that, so that we can integrate and, and build something really amazing. What's different about being a faculty member and being a founder? So as a technical founder, like, you know, in the sense that I, I could build the tool that the company is uh, making, uh, there's a lot to learn about a company and about like, you know, so I think I've learned a lot in the last three years from the company that will have impact on my professorial work, but I was a fine, a good enough professor beforehand, right? So like it, it was not necessary, but it certainly will improve the way I conduct my academic work. You know, just this notion of like a lean startup or, you know, like doing what's necessary and, and no more before getting some feedback to understand whether or not this is the right direction or we should change a little bit, that, that kind of thing. I think there is, there's a lot to learn, a lot of differences in that sense, like just the focus on a single, pro, single product that you can take over multiple years to build into a company. Whereas as an academic, you can sort of move between different projects. Certainly you have to get funding and so on, but, but, but like delivering a paper is very, very, very different than delivering a product that someone would pay for. Or, or even frankly, like 51 is open source, right? That, that someone will download and use and integrate into their everyday work. Uh, those are two very different uh, goals. Reflecting on your research career thus far, what would be your advice for individuals who want to make a dent in AI research? Well, the, the best way to get citations is to release code with your papers. I mean, it's kind of obvious, but not everyone does it still. And then when you release the code with your papers, release code that works. Oh, and, and also release code that does what the paper said it would do. Those are good ways, right? I mean, that's a very low level answer. I mean, a high level answer, I guess, really is like, sometimes in research, the incentives are not well aligned with good research, right? Like, you know, 
in, in computer vision, we have a deadline every six months, a good deadline every six months. Then if you do machine learning or AI as well, you have a deadline every four months in some sense. Like there's just too many deadlines. So you start to like fight for the paper, fight for the deadline rather than actually looking at the bigger problem. Mm-hmm. And I think while it may not be in the short game, it would pay off in the long game to look at bigger problems that you can, that, that would require you to, to understand and analyze over multiple years. Yeah, very, very important advice, especially for younger researchers. Um, and then finally, you have been involved in the planning committee for conferences and workshop, including uh, CVPR, ECCV, AAAI, and CRA. What are some of the trends in computer vision research that you are most excited about, I guess, at the moment? Yeah, it's interesting. So what trends do I see? So, so when I started in video, uh, maybe 10 years ago now, it, there were like five groups worldwide that, that were doing video. Like it was just really not a popular area. And I think it was because it was you know, just bigger data. The software wasn't there for it. Just harder to work with. Uh, time to market or time to paper was longer. But now I see video everywhere. Uh, in fact, you know, the, the most highly requested feature for 51 when we first launched it was video. It, it launched it with images only. Uh, we've gotten dozens of requests for video and it's coming out actually next week, as a matter of fact. Um, so the second trend, I guess, I enjoy seeing this learning with less, you know, like self-supervision, you know, how can you transfer from one domain to another domain? I think that's just a really, it's, it's growing. And I think it's a really good problem space to be in. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, the third trend, which is more of a meta trend, uh, is I do obviously like the direction for, toward reproducibility and accountability in research and in papers and publications. Uh, Jason, at this point of our conversation, I want to move on to the final closing segment, in which I'm going to ask you three rapid-fire questions, and then you can give short answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the competitive vision universe whose work you admire. Uh, I admire the work of Jeff Siskind at Purdue. Uh, I admire the work of uh, C.J. Taylor at UPenn. And I admire the work of uh, Kristen Grauman at UT Austin. Second. I can give you the reason why, but no, I guess you don't want the reasons why. <laughs> it's fine. Go on. Well, secondly, name one book that you would recommend for people to develop a better analytical mindset. So my answer is uh, a book called An Introduction to Mathematical Statistics by Hogg and Craig, which is probably a weird answer, but I think that book really changed my, changed my view of mathematics as a whole and simplified the world significantly for me, both in terms of statistics and other ways of thinking analytically. I'd highly recommend the book. And then finally, uh, imagine that you can send out a tweet to all the aspiring academic professors on Twitter. What could you tweet about? I would say, be willing to say no as often as you can and understand the incentive structure as quickly as possible. Yeah, brilliant. I think that's a great way to end our conversation. So yeah, uh, Dr. Koso, I really enjoy chatting with you today, uh, learning about sort of your academic background, your interest in computer vision, your work at both uh, SUNY Buffalo and Michigan. And then we have a really great coverage of different problems from medical imaging to, you know, image understanding to, you know, video captioning, and especially your work currently at Box of 51, how do you build a product? bring it to market and, you know, sort of the differences between being a professor, being a father, and then be very, very excited to, to see how 
some of the new initiatives in social AI going to work out at, at Stephen. And I'll be sure to include all the links to the show notes so people can have a chance to dig a little deeper and then explore some of your work in the past, you know, 15, 20 years uh, and reach out more if they have any questions. I really enjoy it and I uh, hope you uh, have a great rest of your day. Thank you, James. It was a pleasure to chat. Lots of interesting discussion. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.